Well, again, my, my thanks goes out to each and every person who was involved in the service so far this morning. Being at this conference last week, I already said that I have been made incredibly grateful for the, the ministry of the men who have taken time in this, in this pulpit. But I also have to say, spending time with these 30-some-odd other pastors and discussing our, our lives and our churches, I am also incredibly grateful for the congregation that I have the privilege of ministering to. God has gathered us together, not just as Christians in the church universal, but he has gathered us who are sitting here and some of us who are joining online because we cannot be here. But he has gathered us particularly into Elk Point Baptist Church for a reason. You are not sitting here in this church. For those of you who are members, you are not members of this church by accident. God has placed you in this congregation for a reason, for his glory, and for your good. And I just want to say thank you for making it such a privilege and a blessing and a joy to be, to be the pastor of this church. So getting into what we're talking about today, if I told you this morning that we were going to get to participate in a wedding, that the wedding was going to be a Christian wedding, and that somewhere in the service, Scripture would be read. I imagine most, if not all of you, would have a, an idea that there is a particular passage that has a habit of cropping up at Christian weddings. A passage that has likely become the defining wedding passage. And... Obviously, for most of you, we'd realize that this is 1 Corinthians 13. It's often called the love chapter. And I'll admit, I do not always agree with the way it is used. It is not, in my mind, probably even the best of the wedding passages. It is, after all, sandwiched with a discussion of the use of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, the church. But I do recognize that it is a defining passage of Scripture as far as how we understand love in a biblical light. There's no arguing with that. 1 Corinthians 13 is rightly called the love chapter. There are a few other passages of Scripture that are so singularly defining of a spiritual reality. But the chapter that we're going to be breaking into this morning and spending, Lord willing, the next number of weeks in is pretty close. Just as 1 Corinthians 13 is this love chapter, Hebrews 11 could very easily just be called the faith chapter. It provides not only one of the, if not the clearest definition of faith at its outset, but it also spends the rest of its verses telling us what it looks like, giving us what I like to call the 
Old Testament Hall of Fame of Faith. The Greek word for faith is used in this chapter alone 26 times. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Israelite people, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. This is a veritable who's who of Old Testament history and of God's interaction with mankind. And these are all people that we are going to explore as we spend time in this chapter. And this Hall of Fame list comes on the heels of both a command and a promise that we looked at when we were in Hebrews chapter 10. The command in verses 35 to 36 was, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And again, the promise in verse 39 But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. These Hebrew Christians that were the audience of this letter had endured much for the sake of Christ. Struggle, suffering, public reproach, affliction, plundering of their property, So our author first reminds them in chapter 10 of their own history of faithfulness. Then as we dive into chapter 11, he shows these believers the faithful company that they are joining and defines faithfulness for us. So before we read our passage, I'd ask that you would join with me in prayer. Our God and our Heavenly Father, We receive our example of faith first and foremost in the faithfulness you have shown. You are the pattern we are to model ourselves after. And just as all of these names in this coming list were faithful men and women after you, they did so on imperfectly. They did so with failing. But you are faithful to the uttermost. You are perfectly faithful. And Lord, may that inspire in our hearts a confidence to trust in you. May your perfect faithfulness be the bedrock upon which is built our faith, that we would be assured in our faith, that we would be convicted in our faith because we know that you are faithful. Lord, I pray for this congregation. We are gathered in a building that you have given us. For that, we are grateful. We are gathered with brothers and sisters that you have given us. And some of us are not able to come in person to this building and 
to be in person with us as our brothers and sisters. We pray for those who cannot be here. Whether it is means of distance or health or whatever it might be that is keeping them away from us, Lord, we ask that you would encourage them, build them up, grow them in faith, and that in your will they might be able to again gather with us. And Lord, as we spend time in your word, as we spend time receiving from your word this definition of faith, we ask that you would apply this to our hearts and our lives, and it would shape the way that our faith looks. That we would not be content with even the faith that we came with, but that we would leave grown in the faith with deeper roots, ready to hold on tight to you no matter the storms, no matter the difficulties, no matter the joys, Lord, that we might be rooted in you as a congregation and individually. Lord, we thank you for these things and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Our author said that these Hebrews he was talking to are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. But what is faith? What does that look like? Well, let's read our passage this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. And we will start looking at what it means to have faith. In Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is God's word. Admittedly, in my planning, I had thought likely I would be able to get through these first three verses and perhaps spend some time in verse 4 talking about what it looks like for, by faith, Abel. But, as we all know, God has his own plans, and we have more than enough to chew on here in these three verses. The Greek noun that is almost universally translated faith is pistis. It is used 239 times in the New Testament. It also has a verb form, pistuo, and that's almost unanimously translated believe. And again, that word is used 239 times. 
I'm not a big language guy, either original languages or even my own mother language. But the way that we use language is important. We discussed as we gathered around the Lord's table that the language we use and the way that we understand who our Savior is, what it is that we mean when we call Him the Son of God, is fundamental to us as Christ's followers. So much so that it necessitated the Chalcedonian Creed to nail this down. What is this? What do we mean when we say Jesus the Christ? What do we mean when we call Him the Son of God? And admittedly in our day, particularly in our day, our understanding of the word faith is no less important. In Romans 10, we can read, the righteousness based on faith says, the word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those two Greek words, pistis and pistuo, faith and believe, crop up here. And they arise in the light that your faith put into action as belief is the criteria of your salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That if is conditional. Without faith, without that belief, we are dead in our sins. So if that is what we must have in order to be saved, if we must believe, if we must have faith, then we have got to understand what faith is. And the simple way to do this was, would be I just read again the, the passage and walk off, walk off the stage here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. But in reality, we don't totally understand what that means. We compared it back, but if asked to explain it and give it a definition beyond that, I, I think we would struggle sometimes. But in poetic style, our author here is giving these two statements about faith that very, very closely mirror each other, saying almost the same thing. Assurance of things hoped for. Conviction of things not seen. First and foremost, with these words, assurance and conviction, we can dispel a major myth when it comes to the word faith. For any of you movie buffs, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, daring archaeologist Harrison Ford is pursuing the Holy Grail. And he encounters a bottomless chasm 
with no way across. He hesitates on the edge. He whispers to himself, it's a leap of faith. And then he praying and just dramatically with this fear and sweat pouring off him, he sticks out his foot and drops forward. And then there's this gasp of relief. And he steps into this thin air only to fall to his doom and then is shocked when he steps onto this bridge. Perfectly camouflaged, invisible. It's this gasp of relief and he continues on his quest. And that is how our world pictures faith. And to our shame, sometimes many of us feel the same way. And if that is how our world pictures faith, then it is no surprise when our non-Christian brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, friends look at us and think we are absolutely batty to believe what we do. Because if faith is just sweating and terror and stepping out into complete oblivion, hoping that there'd be something there, The picture of godly faith in our passage isn't one of uncertain terror and a shock when things turn out the way that we'd hope they would. The picture we're given is one of assurance and conviction. And it doesn't mean that we're never going to experience any fear or any doubt. But it does mean that we fully expect God to accomplish a certain outcome even if we don't understand how it could be done. I have had the pleasure of throwing myself from a plane attached to a parachute. I've had the joy of throwing myself from a pod suspended 400 feet above a canyon floor with a bungee cord attached to my feet. And both times, as I edge up to the lip on the edge of the plane, or when I was bungee jumping, they made you hang your toes off the edge of the, the platform. And I'm not going to say I wiggled my way up to that edge and there was no apprehension in my mind. I was scared. But not scared that my chute was not going to open not scared that my bungee cord wasn't going to work. It's just scary standing thousands or hundreds of feet off the ground with a rubber band and a piece of fabric as your safety net. But even with that apprehension, I had total faith in my gear. I was assured and had the conviction necessary to trust myself totally to these pieces of equipment. If I had the kind of faith that our world understands that Harrison Ford had in stepping into this chasm, I would have been nuts to willingly, with no one forcing me to, to jump out of that plane or throw myself off of that pod. If that's all the faith that I had, I would have been crazy to do that. But I had total conviction that 
that rubber band attached to my ankles would be enough to bounce me back up. And some of you will likely still think I'm crazy for that. But I had faith in my gear. I had faith in the staff that had been maintaining it. And I was not surprised when that bungee bounced or when that chute opened. And we should not be surprised when our God, in whom we have faith, does what he says he will do. And there is a moment, whether you're bungee jumping or skydiving or placing your faith in Christ, that tipping point moment that is terrifying because all of the things run through your mind. But if you have faith, if you 100% truly believe that God is who he said he is, if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you really, really believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then there's no need to be surprised when you hit the end of your life and you find yourself in God's company. Another important thing to note in this first verse of chapter 11 is that it solidifies a connection with another major player in all of this, and that is hope. Hope suffers from the same kind of misunderstanding that faith does. I hope that the Oilers will win in Anaheim tonight. I hope that I can get a good sleep and my tiny people will sleep all the way through the night and I will wake up in the morning just refreshed. I hope that it won't rain when I go camping. But for a lot of people... And for our world, this hope is the same kind of thing. It's pie in the sky. It's, I really would wish that I wouldn't have to camp in the rain. But the hope that we have in God is not like that. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 8, 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Depending on how all things go tonight, my hope that the Oilers will win might be a source of great pride tomorrow, and I'll wear my Oilers jersey proudly. 
but my hope also might put me to shame. If I am talking here, all of you are witnesses. I'm hoping that the Oilers win tonight. Tomorrow, there will likely be a text or two if the Oilers lose, going, well, not so much. And my hope will put me to shame. But our hope in our God is not a hope in someone that is so-so. I hope my team wins, but I know that there's a decent chance that they won't. I know that there's a decent chance that somewhere around midnight and then again somewhere around 3 or 4 in the morning, I will be awoken by an angry child who's very hungry. More Sherry's chagrin than mine. But that hope can be put to shame. But when we are granted a living hope, that passage from 1 Peter 1, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you place your hope in Christ and you're just kind of throwing it out there, what more proof does a person need that that hope is going to be justified than the fact that he did actually raise from the dead? He had his all of his disciples that were hoping that Jesus would come back. They believed it, but that hope was proven to be true when Jesus raised from the dead. But in Romans 8, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with Patience. That is the hope that we have. Our hope is grounded in what God has promised that he will do. He has demonstrated that he fulfills his promise. And we wait with patience to see that promise fulfilled. And we see bits and pieces of it being fulfilled. We see moments in our lives where we can see God's promises coming true. But on the day we draw our last breath, or Lord willing, the day where Christ comes back and we see Christ coming back, that is where our hope stops being hope because we see it happen right in front of our eyes. But that also is the moment when there's a cutoff. God requires that we have faith. God requires that we have hope. But as soon as that hope is proved without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus has now come again and is standing before us as the righteous one standing at the right hand of God, there is no longer a hope. There is no longer a faith. There is a, you have either had hope and faith in Christ, and that is where you have placed your hope, or you have not. You cannot have hope, you cannot have faith, after he has revealed himself. Our hope is grounded in the promises of an almighty, all-powerful, eternal God. And in that, it is immovable. 
When we say that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, we're not saying that we have this shaky shot in the dark that if we're right, man, it's going to be great. It is based on a living hope found in Jesus Christ, and our faith, our hope, is meant to be solid. But by nature, being based on hope, based on things that are not seen, how can we have this solid faith? How can we have confidence and conviction in a God that we've never seen? How can we have this confidence and conviction in a Savior we've never met? There's a future that we hope in that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around. The reality is that faith is ultimately a gift. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's easy to see that us being saved is the gift. But faith is the gift, and us being saved is the result of said gift. God, if we are in Christ, has granted us the gift of faith. And that faith is the basis of what we are being assured in the hope that we have in Christ. This is one of those funky situations where we must do what only God can do. And then we have to do what only God can do, and then he rewards us as if we did it. God tells us to have faith. God grants us the gift of faith, and then by that gift of faith, we receive God's reward for the faith that he gave us. This is the good news of the gospel, that we can't earn it. We can't be good enough to have enough faith that God is going to save us. But if God has granted us the gift of faith, and we will believe, and we will live as though we believe. The thread that runs from the beginning of the book of Hebrews to the end of the book of Hebrews ties it all together. And this is the author's desire to see his audience hold fast unto the end in their confession of faith. It's repeated several times throughout the letter. Hebrews 3.6, hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hebrews 4.14, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 6.18, Hold fast to the hope set before us. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And our passage today tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And that by it, the people of old received their commendation. When these believers are being called to hold fast the confession of their hope, they're being told to keep the faith to keep believing on the promises of God and that on the basis of this faith, God's commendation is received. Faith is both a gift from God that he grants at his own discretion 
And it is also a thing that God requires of his people. And there's a reason why our author in this particular situation isn't focusing in, zooming in on the fact that faith is ultimately a gift from God. That's covered elsewhere. Our author has told these people that if their faith is indeed a true and saving faith, which we've already established is a non-negotiable gift from God, then they must persevere in their faith. They must hold fast to it. They must continue in it. To take you back to my example at the beginning of the marriage service, falling in love is something that just happens. You're swept off your feet by this beautiful human being in front of you, and you're just in love. It's beautiful. And it's a wonderful experience while you're there. But the test of the reality and the truth of that love is found in its staying power. That lifelong commitment found in that love where it's not just this whirlwind of hormones and emotions and look how pretty they are, but it is the decision you make somewhere in the midst of these things that goes, I'm sticking with this. Choosing day in and day out to love that person regardless of your own emotions and regardless of how lovable that person seems to you in the moment. There are moments where I am entirely unlovable and Sherry loves me anyways. And it's easy for us to imagine faith as this gift that God gives and this picture receiving it and resting it and enjoying it and the warm fuzzies. But true faith will reveal itself by a life pursuing it and a life fighting for it a life changed by it. Just as our love for our significant others, that love will be revealed by a life pursuing and fighting for that love. Our author has given us this amazingly rich and incredibly succinct definition of, kind of the core thing that God requires from his people, faith. But then he gives us two quick examples. By faith, the people of old received their commendation. In verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. These two examples give some, some legs to what our author means when he says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of the things not seen. The Hebrew forebears that, Lord willing, we're going to be working through in the rest of chapter 11 received their commendation, were counted as righteous because of their faith and not because of their obedience to the law. That's clarified in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These Hebrew forebears, the great hall of fame of faith, and don't miss this hall of fame of faith because this is being written to these Hebrew people. These were people who would have grown up and their whole life would have been drilled into them. Abel, Enoch, Moses, Noah. And these would have been their all-stars. But these people never saw God the Son. They did not know Jesus. But God in His righteousness commended the faith of these forebears in something that they would never see by justifying those who trusted him in faith before Jesus' coming. The second example he gives is one of creation. And to my ears, this kind of comes as something of a look around you. The very world you live in was created by God ex nihilo, out of nothing. The very ground you stand on was created by something that you can't even see. This is the God that we are to have not just hypothetical wishful hope in, but a settled, assured, and convicted hope in. I can have faith that when I take a step out onto the dirt in the parking lot, I'm not going to fall through into the vestiges of space and into nothingness. And I can have faith in that because it is proven. And it is proven because God has willed it to be so. I think it was Ed who mentioned that our planet is still spinning because God has determined that it is still spinning and has made it so. We woke up this morning and took our first conscious breath in because God had given you that breath. And if there is any question in your mind as to why you would have faith in God, is because you woke up and you have a world that you live in, a body that exists, lungs to breathe, and lungs that did breathe. It's not just hypothetical. It's, I can jump on this ground and know I'm not going to fall through it. We can have settled, assured, and convicted hope in our God because he has demonstrated that he is worthy of that faith and hope. As we start to wrap up here, brothers and sisters, we live in a day thousands of years removed from our opportunity to see Jesus Christ face to face, to witness his miracles, to hear teaching straight from Jesus' mouth. But the faith described in our passage, the faith that is a gift from God, is a thousand times better than just being able to see Jesus in person. 
the faith that the disciples had in Christ, seeing him do all of what he did, was still a gift from God. How do we know that? Because Judas saw all the same things. Judas saw Jesus feed 5,000 people just by tearing it off and handing it out. Judas saw Jesus heal lepers and make the lame walk and make the blind see. But he was not given the gift of faith. The Pharisees saw all the exact same things. It was their job to be on Messiah watch, looking out for this Messiah that God has promised. And then he comes, and what do they do? They kill him. They did not have the gift of faith. Many turned to Jesus during his earthly ministry, but just as many rejected his message. The Israelites, within days of walking through a sea parted and from a country decimated by plagues from God, are grumbling that God doesn't care about them and led them out here to die in the wilderness. Our faith is not based on a divine miracle that we saw happen then. Man, I I believe in that. So don't be discouraged if you've never seen someone make a blind man see. Because there are plenty who saw it and still didn't believe. Our faith doesn't require these crazy demonstrations that we read throughout Scripture. Our faith requires a gift from God and then a gift from God that is exercised in belief. So have faith, brothers and sisters. Believe that what God has recorded in his word is true. And this will be all the evidence you need of the fact that we have a God that can do miracles. Because if you believe and have faith in God then what more evidence do you need than this? Sure, it would be real cool to see God do all sorts of crazy things to descend in a pillar of cloud and fire in the parking lot. And to see God face to face is something we all can absolutely dream of and look forward to. But where God has placed you now, in the life that God has given you now, have faith that when God says in here that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect, sinless life, came as both man and God, fully man and fully God, united in the one person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, when the Bible says that is true, believe that. Believe in your heart that when This book says that Jesus died on the cross, was buried for three days, and was raised back to life by God. Believe that. Have faith in that. And believe that when God promises that Christ will come again, that the dead will be raised, and that at the end of all things, there will be a judgment of 
Either you have confessed and had hope in Christ and faith in Christ and acted on that in belief, and you will be saved unto eternal life, or you will have failed to do those things, rejected the things of Christ, and you will believe then, but it will not be counted to you as righteousness. You will believe to your own shame and to your own damnation. Believe that what God has recorded in his word is true. And be assured, persevering in the hope that can be found in Jesus. And in doing so, you will prove that you have faith. And you will preserve your souls to God's glory, by God's gift, and for your own good. As the worship team comes up to bring us in a closing song, I'd ask that you take a moment. Consider these words that we have read. Consider these truths that God has given us. Consider how after gathering around the Lord's table and hearing the truths of Scripture, how the Holy Spirit is working on your own hearts. Would you pray with me? And then we will have a closing song. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we pray for the gift of faith. For each one who is sitting here in this service, for each one who is joining us online, for each one who reads this book that you have given us, that you might open it to their hearts and reveal it to their spirits that they might have faith. And we pray that as we have this faith that you have given us, that we would put it into practice, that we would live lives as ones who are changed And Lord, we pray that as we, in your will, get into some of this hall of fame that you've given us, that you would show us how these men and women have taken action on their faith to your glory and to their own good. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.